Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 14th pilot episode, we have Kendra Pates on to talk about the House of the Seven Gables, an exhibition that she's curated for Illinois State University galleries, and that'll be opening February 23rd, and the exhibition runs through April 7th. You'll want to go ahead and check out those links provided at studiobreak.com to see all the different ways that you can participate. If you haven't heard of Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site that features a variety of contemporary artists talking about their work and developments of their studio practice. And again, each of those blog posts have slideshows and links to the artist's website, as well as links to the iTunes store where you can subscribe to the Studio Break podcast. So please go ahead and do that. Once again, if you'd like to access all of the artists that we have, you can look on the left side of the homepage on the sidebar. There is an archive function, and that allows you to go month by month. So it's a really handy way to check out new artists. And again, we have featured a variety of Illinois State University alumni, faculty. So go ahead and check all the artists that we have out there. Once again, if you want to find out more about me, you can see that I have a link on the sidebar as well to davidlinaway.com. And again, you can see some of the paintings that I do. And you'll also notice that there is a donate button, so if you feel like contributing, that would be greatly appreciated. There are a variety of ways to interact with Studio Break. One is to check out our Facebook page where we preview upcoming guests and give announcements for show openings, things like that. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, so please go ahead and do that. All right, here is Kendra talking about the House of the Seven Gables opening up February 23rd. Stay tuned. Welcome to a special highlight episode of Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined tonight by Kendra Pates. How are you this evening? I'm doing well, Dave. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. And, you know, we've had you on before to talk about Violet Poe Projects, which is another curatorial endeavor that you have. But tonight we're going to talk about the House of the Seven Gables, which opens at Illinois State University, February 23rd. And if you could just provide us a bit of a a background on this and what the show's about, maybe some of the artists that are included in the exhibition and how it all came to be. Sure. The exhibition is based on Nathaniel Hawthorne's book from 1851, The House of the Seven Gables. Um, And you know, keeping the same title, having that sort of direct reference to the book. Um, The exhibition really initially stemmed from a class project, which sounds kind of crazy to say at this point. Um, But when I was finishing my visual culture master's, I was taking a course on the early American novel. And this was one of the books that we read. And it just really resonated with me. You know, I'm very... Um, I guess I'm really interested in and always have been in ideas related to the haunted house. You know, I think I might have mentioned to you before that um, if I were to teach a grad seminar, it would be on like a critical history of the haunted house. And this um, particular book really 
I don't know. It just struck me in the way that this house in the book serves to um, just house generations of trauma for this pension family. And there's so much happening with it that ties into the Salem witch trials. Um, it's not about the Salem witch trials, but there's there are references to it. Um, and just this idea of violence and melancholy and repentance pressed memories and ancestral guilt and the supernatural. It's just all kind of mixed up into one. And there's also um, this whole dialogue about representation. There are these different portraits, different types of portraits that play really pivotal roles throughout the book. And Hawthorne, just the way he writes, um, he has a really intensely visual language. And I was so drawn to that. Um, so in the course, it was um, students had to do a pedagogical project, and most of them had to develop a curriculum for teaching an English course. And um, given that I was a curator, I asked if I could curate a hypothetical exhibition and develop the materials for it. Um, so the professor was really supportive and let me do that. And um, so that was, you know, this exhibition I put together in two weeks on paper, um, but I thought there was really something to it. I thought that, um, you know, taking this visual approach to interpreting literature was really fascinating. Also being at a university, I thought there would be so many opportunities for collaboration with different departments. And so it was an idea that I just kind of kept thinking about and sort of re-editing and coming back to and collecting works for really, um, you know, kind of developing my ideal exhibition for it. Um, and then, um, finally sort of presented it to my colleagues and they were very supportive and we were able to receive some funding for it that allowed us to actually do it. And even in the process, even from the time that, um, we decided, yes, go ahead with the exhibition, um, over the course of it, it was still changing and shifting, you know, as, as I would come across new work or as, um, as I would secure a work, you know, that would affect which other works would be included in the show. So as not to have, um, I guess to have conversations among the work, but not to have overlaps among the work in terms of the way the pieces are functioning. I guess I'm not really getting into the themes of the show. I guess I'm giving you kind of a general overview of what's happening and then I can jump jump to that too. Right. And of course we can go into those thematic ideas behind the exhibition and talk about some of the ways that the artists approach dealing with that. Of course, we're familiar with some of them and some of them have even appeared on studio break, including Bob Jones and Bill Conger, Benjamin Gardner, Brian Kaepernakis. But what are some of the other things that go into organizing a number of these other artists and how do you go about deciding who's going to be in the show and, and what's that process like? Um, it's really about, for me, there's a lot of editing and revisiting things over and over again. I mean, because I've been thinking about this show for so long, I've honestly looked at thousands of <laughs> artworks with this show in mind, um, whether in artist studios, while visiting galleries, while doing research trips, um, or just because I'm in the place that I am, you know, I can't always visit um, galleries and studios quite as often. Um, 
outside of our individual communities. So I do a lot of research through the web as well. Um, and just like art periodicals, things like that. Um, so as I was kind of narrowing down the ideas that I wanted to focus on, I mean, the book is so, it's just, it's really richly layered with all of these different visual elements. Um, and there's so much happening that I'm interested in, you know, I mean, if I were going to teach a grad seminar someday, it would be on a critical history of the haunted house, I think. Um, and so it's something that just the idea of a haunted house and all of the different ways that can be represented or thought about whether, um, you know, in a cheesy horror movie or a Gothic novel or in the notion of just like a house as a container for traumatic pasts, um, whatever notion that is. Um, that was one of the things that appealed to me about the book in general, that just this sort of Gothic kind of streak running through it. Um, I've been for a long time, very interested in the various uses of domestic architecture. I mean, that's one of the, um, primary motivations for doing Violet Pope projects too, you know, this, um, different way to explore the space that, we live in, um, you know, through somebody else's eyes um, and thinking about the different ways that the artwork can be viewed when suddenly it's surrounded by all of these, um, you know, these other photographs, these other artworks, you know, our dog racing through. Um, but there, in addition to that, um, there's so much in it about history. There's a lot in it, um, because of my background, one of the things that I really zeroed in on was the recurrence of portraiture throughout the book. Um, and it begins with this, um, Puritan patriarch of the family. Um, essentially the book follows this family, um, the Pynchon family and the Puritan patriarch is this colonel um, who has acquired his land through accusing the original landowner of mesmerism. So basically he's accused him of being a wizard and the man is hung for that um, because of this accusation. And um, as, as he's being hung, he points at Colonel Pynchon and says, puts a curse on him and his family and says, God will give him blood to drink. Um, and this happens pretty early in the novel and sort of sets the whole tone. Um, you can read much of what happens in the book as Hawthorne's own sort of working through of his own, um, his own sort of ancestral guilt. That's one of the themes in the show. Um, Hawthorne was a descendant of judge Haythorne from the Salem witch trials. Um, he apparently added the W later in life, um, to sort of distance himself from him. Um, but so he was one of the judges that was condemning these women. So there are these elements, um, or these references to witchcraft sort of filtering throughout the exhibition, um, and the book. Um, actually one of the artists, Corinne Botts, we were able to commission her to make some new photographs for the show. So we'll have three photographs in our show. One was an existing photo. Um, and it's the one we're using for the press materials. Um, it's the image for advertising the show. Um, but she also went to Salem, visited the current tourist site of the house of the seven gables 
and made a photograph of Nathaniel Hawthorne's desk. Um, and it's specifically zeroed in on the ink stain on the desk. Um, and that's where he wrote the book was at that desk. Um, and another one she made at the Rebecca nurse homestead. So one of the women who was implicated in these trials, um, and it's a close up of, I think it's, it's a rope coming through a hole, um, in this wooden door. I think it's, um, like a doorknob sort of, but then you have this hanging rope and the implications of that. Um, so, I mean, it's, there's a lot of, you know, there's kind of some, a lot of darkness running through the show. Um, I think I described it in the press release as, um, the mansion embodying these generations of violence and melancholy and superstition and repressed memories. Um, and so that filters through a lot of the work, but there's also this commenting on the passage of time and the supernatural. Um, and then the portraiture is this other aspect of it that um, is sort of influenced by that. Well, and it seems too that with, with all the thematic ideas that, there might be a, a lot of different resolutions for the types of work that you might have. And yeah. so, so you described some of them. I mean, is there, is there some that you might maybe highlight as a, a point to almost contrast that in terms of just talking about maybe some of that, that diversity that's in the exhibition? Oh, sure. Um, you know, there are, I think 27 works. There are 22 artists in the show um, and they're from all all over the U S but also a few artists from Germany. Um, and there's a wide variety of work in terms of there are videos, there are video installations, sculptures, photographs, paintings. Um, it's part of the idea of the media that are included in the show, for instance, um, gets back to those different representations that were happening in the book with the portraiture. Um, so, Within Hawthorne's novel, there's this large, I guess that's where I started um, in the last section. There's this large painted portrait of Colonel Pynchon, so the patriarch of the family. And this large portrait hangs over the family for generations. Um, one of the other characters has this little pencil drawing um, that's a portrait of her brother who's been away. He's been um, in jail for several years. And then a daguerreotype. Um, a daguerreotypist moves into the house. He's sort of a boarder in the house, um, but he makes photographs and those play a really pivotal role. So um, thinking about the different ways that we've represented ourselves, you know, at the time that the book starts, um, at the time that Colonel Pynchon had that portrait painted, um, portraiture was really very, um, very class-based, you know, very few people would be able to apport afford to commission a painted portrait. Um, and then by the time the, we see the daguerreotype, um, that type of, um, like that ability to have a representation of yourself or of your loved one is becoming much more democratic. You know, many more people can have it. Um, so I think Hawthorne throughout the book, there's this sort of, um, embracing of modernity in some ways, like the daguerreotypist functions to sort of usher modernity into the whole family. And there's a scene with a train that's really important. Um, but with some of the works that are included, um, specifically, I wanted to have film and video 
um, because of thinking about those next sort of steps. Like let's say Hawthorne would have written today and sort of hypothesizing that, well, you know, after photography, what are some other um, technologies that he could have embraced and incorporated into a story? Um, And that gets kind of tricky. But so there is one installation by an artist named Rachel Kadori that utilizes 16 millimeter film. Um, And then a few of the other pieces um, are video. One, actually two um, specifically by Yako Olivier are animations on DVD. So um, they're kind of these paintings that he's animated. One is of a portrait that's consistently shifting. And I think there's a nice parallel with that one to thinking about um, there's a scene in the book where it seems that the portrait of Colonel Pynchon has sort of come alive. And then thinking about this tradition of portraiture in novels, you know, um, Dorian Gray would be kind of a primary example as this portrait changes over time. You know, Dorian Gray stays young, but his portrait ages. Um, So with some things it was thinking I mean, the technology or the medium is not the primary driving factor for it, but I did really want to have those media represented. Um, There are certain things like with the portrait-based pieces, um, each of them uses either like kind of a straightforward portraiture strategy or the figure in a different way. And each one can sort of evoke a different character in the book without really illustrating them necessarily. You know, none of the pieces that are included in that section were made about a specific character. Um, but a painting by Andreas Fischer is a painting based on found tintype photographs. Um, so you have that nice sort of play back and forth between those different media. Um, they're, you know, the time period, the way that they're painted, um, the language of photography that comes into the painting, um, is really a beautiful fit. And the, the character of the person, like sort of the way that we visually interpret the person can sort of be read in reference to Colonel Pynchon. So this ancestor of the family, this kind of stern Puritan ancestor, um, and each, Each of the pieces sort of has, I know I'm not getting into like a full, I guess, paragraph or full essay on each piece. I could, but I'll keep you here all night. Um, (laughs) But those are, I guess, a few examples, but I can get into more examples if you're interested. Oh, no, I I think that does a good job at kind of giving a a little bit of maybe some of the variety in the show. And, And I guess one of the things that I was curious about, too, and we've We've talked about, or at least you've described a little bit about, you know, placing this in a certain time. And I'm just kind of curious then what what kind of discussion or, you know, experience you you think that this will help kind of, um, I don't know, generate in terms of uh, people coming and seeing the show and interacting with the pieces. Uh, it's really, it's been so fantastic already. I have to say um, I've been having these really exciting interactions with people, some of them for months leading up to the show, you know, some of the people that we're collaborating with, I mean, Milner library has been incredibly supportive. Um, and then Melissa Johnson, one of the photo his, or she is our photo historian in 
the School of Art. She is curating with two students um, an exhibition of daguerreotypes that will be on view at Milner Library. So people, you know, I felt like it would be really important to have daguerreotypes available for people to see um, because they play such a huge role in the book. But it it wasn't really working for this exhibition, so it made sense to let them be sort of their own exhibition. And they've done such a beautiful job with it, and that will be open at the same time. Um, so there's all this programming going on. There are classes in the English department and in the art department that um, are a, have been assigning the book, and some of them have been doing it semesters ahead of time just to prep um, toward the exhibition, which has been great. Um, we're hosting reading groups. So I'm leading some, some professors in the art department and in the English department are reading some. Um, some have been taking place just um, like existing reading groups around town have added it to their list and then they're coming in and doing a tour of the exhibition. Um, and so I think that each person will certainly get something different out of it. You know, I'm interested in the idea of sort of revisiting this novel. You know, this Hawthorne was kind of a foundational writer for the early American novel, but revisiting, um, you know, The House of the Seven Gables is not as widely read as The Scarlet Letter. It's certainly not unknown. It's not like recovering a lost work and bringing it to light. Um, But I think it's really fascinating to look at the book and see how many ideas he was talking about, you know, more than 150 years ago that artists are still exploring today and exploring in really compelling and captivating ways. And I think using the book as a structure, um, you know, I mentioned before a visual approach to interpreting literature. Um, I think um, just that connection between art and literature um, that so many people have explored in different ways is something that I've always been really invested in. It's something that I've been, you know, interested in with former projects and with future projects. Um, But I like that idea of having this sort of common base that starts it out. You know, I've had books like a lending library set up in the gallery for months so that people could just borrow the book if they wanted to read it. Um, it's also available for free online via project Gutenberg. Um, and you know, people might read five pages of it, you know, I've certainly talked to people who have not enjoyed reading it and I'm not going to also say that it's my favorite book by any means. You know, I think when you start engaging with um, an existing work, you know, there's sort of that, um, that assumption that you must think it's the best book ever. <laughs> um, right. But it's, I mean, it is a book that I have enjoyed, but it's predominantly because of, um, just this kind of the language that he uses. It's really visual. I was talking to somebody the other day about just how sort of cinematic it is. Um, you know, and there's this well outdoors that's, spewing visions. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, so there, I mean, there are a lot of things that I hope that people get out of it, but there are things that I never even imagined that are happening as a result of it. These uh, theatrical performances that are going to happen in April, um, 
just stemmed from a theater professor, Sonia Moser. Um, we met just by chance. We had a mutual friend and we ran into each other outside the garlic press, a restaurant in normal. Um, and she said, Oh, I heard about this show that's coming up and I'd really like to talk to somebody about it. Said, oh, that's great. That's my show. I've been working on it um, for a long time. And, um, so anyway, we started meeting and talking and, as a result of that, she and her one of her 300-level theater classes are developing these performative responses to the exhibition and the themes of the exhibition. And they'll be free and open to the public. They'll happen a couple of times in April. Um, what day will they be happening? Oh, April 2nd and April 4th. Um, and as we were sort of brainstorming this and what it could be, um, you know, we talked about doing it in the gallery, but then thought, well, it might not really work given the way the show is going to be set up. And we came up with the idea of doing it in Williams Hall, which is the former library on ISU's campus. And it's also allegedly haunted by um, Angie Milner, a former librarian at ISU. So really like that notion of tying into the ghost story that does exist on campus, too. Um, so it's been a really great, just to work with other people and think about other responses to the same material. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting work to be seen at the exhibition. So if you could just provide a little bit of that information, where, where can we see it and when can we see it? When's the opening? Um, the opening is next Saturday. It is on February 23rd. The opening events will be from four o'clock to seven o'clock, um, we're opening the exhibition with a lecture by Corinne Botts. So she'll be talking at four o'clock and then we'll very quickly pick up all of the chairs and we'll have our regular opening reception from five until seven. So um, Corinne will be visiting from New York for two days and it would be a great time for people to get a chance to meet her and talk with her about the three photographs she has in the show. Um, and then we have many, many other dates. But the show opens February 23rd and will continue through April 7th. Excellent. So it seems like there's a lot of time for anyone that might not be able to make the opening to, to see the show since it's up for so long. So that's excellent. Yes. And then we'll have plenty of other programming going on. Um, the other artist lecture won't be until March. That will be on March 20th, and that will be Dario Robledo. Um, and then we'll also have these satellite exhibitions happening at Milner Library. They'll run concurrently with our exhibition. So one is called A Moment That Flits Away, Daguerrean Vision in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables. And I think I mentioned that, um, but that's curated by Melissa Johnson with assistance from Marissa Webb and Samantha Simpson, two of her students. Um, also, the Special Collections Department of Milner Library um, has pulled all of their Nathaniel Hawthorne-related materials, and they have those on view. And that was organized by Maureen Brunsdale. We have, on February 25th, a teacher workshop with Andrew Hewitt called The Art of Bookmaking. Um, registration is required for that. Um, on March 6th at 5.30, I'll be doing a gallery walk. So we do tours, um, you know, free curator-led tours at any time for classes, community groups. Sometimes we do it for two people who are just walking in. Um, but this will be one that's just kind of on the books so people know they can come in and just 
you know, walk around the show with me and I'll talk about the show and answer their questions. And it will just be kind of a nice laid back atmosphere. Um, and then just two more dates. I'm sure everybody's just writing dates down. Um, <laughs> um, April 1st, Melissa Johnson will give a lecture about um, the daguerreotypes on view at Milner Library. And then April 2nd from noon to 1.30 and Thursday, April 4th from 4 to 5.30 is when the theater performances will be happening in Williams Hall. And although it sounds long, the performances will actually be 10 minutes and then they'll sort of start over again so people can come and go. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us this evening, and I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, exhibition myself on the 23rd. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Kendra for joining us, and please follow the link to the Illinois State University Gallery's website where they have more information about the exhibition, which opens February 23rd and runs through April 7th. Be sure to check out the other exhibitions going on at Illinois State University Galleries, including Judy Glansman's Face to Face, which runs through March 3rd. Judy was featured on Studio Break last July, episode 37, so please go ahead and check that out if you'd like to hear more about her artwork. Again, if you'd like to find out more about me, your host, David Linaway, please check out that link to my website on the homepage, on the sidebar, David Linaway, click that hyperlink and check it out. You'll also notice that we do have a new donation function, so if you're feeling charitable or perhaps you listen to the Studio Break podcast for a while and would just like to contribute, we'd really appreciate any and all donations. As always, our music today was provided by and found on freemusicarchive.org where they have thousands of songs, whole albums that you can download. You can sort through all sorts of stuff there and get a lot of free music, so please go ahead and check that out. Our intro song was Wheels on Fire, Land of the Haunted Houses, and taking us out is Superpose, Lost Cosmonaut. Once again, please peruse the archive of Studio Break. Again, we've got a ton of different podcasts up there, including those lengthy ones with Bill Conger, Benjamin Gardner, Brian Kapernakis, and Bob Jones, all of which are in the House of the Seven Gables. And you might also find other ones like Michael Willies from, I believe, Episode 8, and... Ron Jackson, who also recently had a show at the Peoria Art Guild. So please go ahead and check out all the ones that we have up on studiobreak.com. Just a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, and you can also like our Facebook page where we provide previews of upcoming guests and exhibition announcements of past guests, things like that. So be sure and like us there. Once again, we'd really appreciate sharing this with anybody that you might find would be interested once again we do have those twitter and facebook share buttons so please go ahead and use those and please help spread the word about this really exciting exhibition all right everyone thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you real soon